by John Mortimer adapted by Richard Stoneman starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Horace Rumpel If this story sounds like a long drawn out confession forgive me there are not too many occasions when I've used subterfuge to win a case but when I found my services retained for the defence of the Reverend Timothy Donkin, I fear I had to behave in a manner of which I am now almost ashamed. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. The matters which arose were of an ecclesiastical nature, a strange territory to one whose concerns had almost always been secular before that point. It's true that my old father was a cleric, so I was, to that extent, a son of the manse. But the Reverend Timothy Donkin was quite different to the clergy I'd met before. He introduced me to a world of magic and mystery, where miracles were found to be very much alive and kicking. Is that you, Rumpel? Oh, no. I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fast in fires. Till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and... Please stop now, Rumpel. We have a visitor. Oh, Christ. Shh! Don't say that. Say what, for God's sake? Shush. A member of the clergy is present. Ah. Timothy. Oh, you know, Cousin Esme's boy. Hmm? The one with the sister no one ever talks about. Wendy? I told you all about Wendy and her brother Timmy. He's here and he wants to see you. Oh. She threw open the sitting-room door with a flourish. Struggling out of an armchair to greet me was a tubby fellow with an eager expression on his face and a slightly soiled dog collar around his neck. Horace, I'm so delighted to meet you. Oh, it's such a relief. Timmy's been made a canon of Launchester Cathedral. He's quite a big shot now. Hilda, was that a funny? Was what a funny? Oh, maybe not. Um, sit down, sit down, please, and, uh, and, and, and tell me about the trouble you're in. How do you know I'm in trouble? Well, you, you have that look about you, the, the look of, of a client. Now, what can it be? Fiddling the organ fund, pawning the candlesticks, choir boys. Rumpole, don't be disgusting. It's nothing like that, I promise you. I suppose it's being described as old-fashioned adultery. You see, I'm a married man, Horace. Makes it much easier to commit adultery if you are. Rumpole, don't be facetious. Adultery is no laughing matter. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Adultery uh, is never fine. Uh, Rumpole and I may disagree on that point. What? <laughs> you seem perfectly happy to defend clients who jump in and out of bed with women they barely know. I will work for anyone who pays me. Well, you sound like a prostitute, for heaven's sake. Mm. Oh, I, I'm sure that... A, oh, goodness... More tea, Timmy. Uh, oh, yes, please. And, um, is that last Gary Baldy looking for a home? Mm. Ah, thank you. If you're really hungry, there's some bread in the kitchen and a fish in the fridge. If you're going to make a joke about feeding the 5,000, we don't want to hear it. Now, just be quiet and listen to Timmy. Does your wife tell you how to behave constantly, even on the Sabbath? Actually, no. My wife, Gertrude, is an absolute saint. Hmm. Uh, but she's not the tidiest person in the world, and she fails to keep the children quiet. Ah. Uh, we have two boys, you see, and they're singing, 
They're shouting, they're running and jumping and shooting and screaming. Uh, well, it makes it very difficult to get sufficient peace to compose my sermons. Uh, I need to retreat, to speak inner peace. Let me guess, you make a beeline for the local monastery? Um, the local hotel, actually. The St. Edithna. It's very quiet there, and I like to ring for a pot of tea in the middle of the afternoon. Perhaps push a boat out, order a toasted tea cake or two. You could afford that on a regular basis. Oh, yes. So, as a canon, you must get quite a bang for your buck. Um, uh, no, uh, no, the St. Edithna doesn't charge very much out of season. I never stay the night. And yet... They made a formal complaint against me to the bishop. Who did? My accusers from my congregation. They allege I had a... a female companion in my room. That's quite an allegation. They've got a witness. A maid says she saw me open the door to a woman. And what do you say? They're going to charge me with conduct unbecoming a clerk in holy orders... Do you perhaps appear in ecclesiastical courts, Horace? There is no court in heaven or earth where Rumpole isn't ready or willing to appear. Oh, on the Day of Judgment, I can assure you, I shall be prepared to get up on my hind legs and put a few impertinent questions to the prosecution. <laughs> You've asked the right man, Timmy. Oh, yes. Rumpole's become quite the expert on adulterous behaviour. Not that my wife's suggesting you are guilty of any kind of adulterous behaviour, Timmy. Yes, I am. And my reputation for never pleading guilty is probably what drew you to me. Is that why you picked on Rumpole for this ecclesiastical course, celebre? Um, uh, actually, I don't know any other barristers. Oh. <laughs> with some of York defenceless. That night, as we lay together in the matrimonial bed, separated by a couple of feet of mattress and Hilda's absorbing crossword puzzle, she who must be obeyed spoke up with deep feeling. Oh, it's absolutely disgusting. A rude word in the Daily Telegraph. Even the clergy are misbehaving nowadays. It's mainly the clergy who are misbehaving from what you read in the news of the world. Huh. From what you read in the news of the world, Rumpel, I refuse to look at that dreadful rag. And I have no idea why you continue to do so. <clears throat> A fellow has to keep up with the law reports, Hilda. I rather took to Canon Timmy. Oh, I expect you did. No doubt you're birds of a feather. Meaning what? Well, I've always had my suspicions about that pupil in chambers. That pupil? What she called begins with a P. P, P. Probert. Miss Probert? Oh, you can't be serious. Oh, I suppose she'll be helping you with Timmy's case. Well, she's got nothing better to do. <laughs> Spending afternoons in hotel bedrooms just for a bit of peace and quiet. <laughs> I never heard anything so ridiculous. And yet you'll be defending him. I thought you'd be pleased. He is, after all, family. Not my family. Donkin family. Bad blood. Odd bods and ruffians. Timmy's sister, Wendy, who no one ever mentions, she went to jail. How do you know that, Hilda? Everyone knows that, Rumpole. Even though no one ever mentions her? Ugh. 
Don't be obtuse. <clears throat> Good night, Rumpel. Oh, are we going to sleep now? Well, if you can, Rumpel, with your conscience. She who must be obeyed still had Liz Probert in her sights. My conscience was perfectly clear with respect to that particular pupil. As for the Porsche of our chambers, Philida Erskine Brown, nay, Trant. Well, she was about to give birth to her baby, the father of whom was probably my learned friend, Claude Erskine Brown. It was thoughts of Philida that kept me awake for what seemed like hours, but might have been just a couple of minutes. I arrived in the early afternoon of the day before Canon Timmy was due to stand trial, and found the cathedral, grey and gold in the sunlight, quiet and dignified in a lake of green grass in the middle of the close. It looked splendidly aloof after centuries of war, thanksgiving and martyrdom to the small matter of one of its clergy being guilty, or not, of conduct unbecoming his cloth. Canon Timmy looked equally aloof when I found him near the west entrance replenishing a table of leaflets containing fascinating facts about the history of the building. And, of course, the original church was built by Bishop Sartorius in the year 852 and was dedicated to St. Edithna, who was accused of, um, well, shenanigans of a sexual nature. Oh. Trumped-up charges, of course. Oh, of course. Because the problem was actually that the Romans didn't like her converting everyone to Christianity. Uh. Still, she was found guilty... Stoned to death on the site of the very hotel in which you'll be staying yourself, Horace. Ooh, is there a blue plaque to commemorate the stoning? Uh, no, but some visitors to the hotel do claim to have seen the ghost of St. Edithna as she haunts the corridors at night, mm. wringing her hands in despair. Mm. Others say she's only visible if you've partaken of the restaurant cheese board. <laughs> Apparently, she appears in a white gown. Head bowed, lost in prayer. Can you imagine such a ghastly vision in your mind's eye? Erskine Brown. I'm sorry? Kneeling in the middle of a sea of empty pews was a familiar figure. I, 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 I must just have a word. Um, <clears throat> oh, um, yes, of course. Claude Erskine Brown was lost in prayer. Head bowed, hands clasped together, and so I made my excuses to Canon Timmy and tiptoed over to join my learned friend. When holy and devout religious men are at their beads, tis much to draw them thence, so sweet is zealous contemplation. Rumpo, what on earth are you doing here? Oh, I drop into West Country cathedrals from time to time just to charge up the spiritual batteries. You're joking? Of course I'm joking. As a matter of fact, I'm pursuing my career in the ecclesiastical courts. You can't do that. Why ever not? You have to be a practicing member of the Church of England. I am a member of the Church of England, and I practice down the old bailey. How did you get in on the act? Sam Ballard was asked to suggest someone to prosecute a cleric. Soapy Sam? Why on earth was our esteemed head of chambers asked for his suggestion? Is he still president of the Lawyers' as Christian Society? More than that, Rumpole. He's the Chancellor of Launchester. The judge for this diocese. Didn't you know? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, of course I knew. I just... Well, now, it's all down to Bollard, isn't it? What's done to Bollard? Eh, Ballard. Whether my client gets to keep his frock. He hasn't got a hope in hell. 
Hell, in this case, being a trial conducted by you in front of the blessed Bollard. I do hope you're not going to quote the Bible at me. Why ever not? The Bible has noble poetry in it, and some good morals, and a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. Oscar Wilde? Mark Twain. And I will quote the Bible. I will quote any book, good or bad. There is nothing I won't stoop to in the ruthless defense of my client. Erskine Brown and I walked in thoughtful silence to the St. Edithna Hotel. I have no idea what my learned friend was thinking, but I couldn't stop mulling over the irony of defending a case of alleged adultery against a man whose wife had slept with me. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doth it destroyeth his own soul. There was a queue at the reception desk, but Erskine Brown decided not to wait. He was meeting some people in the lounge for tea. The six accusers, Rumpole. There have to be six, of course, according to ecclesiastical law, which you know all about. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Six accusers because of, um... Just remind me. A case of conduct unbecoming against a priest has to be brought by six of his parishioners. It's they who have to put up the money for the trial. So they're pretty keen to unfrock the canon. Oh, very much so. Especially old Lambert. Who? Oh, really, Rumpole? Have you even opened your brief? Opened it, certainly. Read it thoroughly? Not quite. Peter Lambert is the biggest estate agent in this part of the country. Lambert and Palfrey. You'll see their signs everywhere in Lorchester. Well, Palfrey's dead now, of course. Of course. But Lambert lives on to rid the cathedral of this turbulent priest. Yeah, I'd, I'd hardly call him turbulent. Rather ineffectual, actually. But there's no law against that, ecclesiastical or otherwise. The Reverend Donkin, turbulent or ineffectual, or however you wish to describe him, lived in a Georgian rectory just outside the cathedral precincts. Uh, careful of the balls, Horace. And, uh, oh, and the rose case. Oh, yes. Uh, Evidence oh. of his children was everywhere oh. to be seen. Uh, but his wife was not. Are you okay down there? Uh, yes, uh, I didn't notice that, um, what is it? Oh, bottle lurking in the shadows. Oh, the boys do love their fizzy pop. <laughs> um, I'd make you some tea, but I fear Gertrude's in the kitchen. Oh, we're not really speaking at the moment. Safer if I keep my distance. Oh, right. Um, we can find somewhere to sit in here, I think. Just move that gun and bow and arrow. Oh, sorry. Was that another arrow? They, mm. they do get everywhere. I, uh, <clears throat> I saw a sign on the way here, Timmy. A sign from God? <laughs> no, from Lambert and Palfrey estate agents. They seem to have bought the field next door. Hmm. I believe they intend to sell it to someone who will build a dozen bungalows. Uh, we've tried to object, but Lambert has friends in the planning department. He has friends everywhere. Do you have friends? I have a small but loyal congregation. And a small but loyal family. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, remind me, your mother Esme is my wife's first cousin? That's right. And you have a sister? Uh, Just the one sister? What's she called? Uh, Wendy. Younger, older, 
I'm afraid we never speak about Wendy. Ah, yes. She who must was telling me... I'm sorry, she who must? My wife, Hilda. She ah. was telling me that no one talks about Wendy. I was wondering why not. I see. Then let's talk about theology. Theology? Well, to be more specific, faith, blind, trusting belief. Are you capable of that? I like to think so. Putting yourself in someone else's hands entirely. Trusting God. Trusting me. No criticism of the Almighty, of course, but I wonder if he's had quite as much courtroom experience. I trust you, of course, Horace. Then tell me, who was in the hotel bedroom with you? I think that's a matter I'd rather leave between the two of us. Between you and the lady concerned? Between me and God. My conscience is perfectly clear. He will be my judge. Eventually, but tomorrow your judge will be Soapy Sam Ballard. So hadn't you better tell me? No. And when you're in the witness box, when you're under oath? I shall simply say I don't consider it to be anyone's business. You're making my job impossible. I'm sure you'll do your best. I always do my best, but I can't perform miracles. And what we need now is a veritable act of God. Ah, amen to that. As a storm of biblical proportions raged outside, I sat alone at a table in the hotel restaurant that evening. Erskine Brown was placed in solitary confinement at a separate table, and tucked into a far corner was none other than the Chancellor, the head of chambers, Soapy Sam Ballard himself. By himself. Good evening, Ballard. Is it you, Rumpel? Of course not. It's the Archbishop of Canterbury travelling incognito. I say, Erskine Brown. Uh, what is it, Rumpel? Why don't we three get together for dinner? With the case coming on tomorrow? That would hardly be a privilege. I think it more seemly, Rumpel, if I dine alone. But you'd have the defence and the prosecution with you. I mean, neither of us could nobble you. Oh, I suppose, I judge. Chancellor, please, Erskine Brown. It is an ecclesiastical title. Of course, of course, uh, Chancellor. Um, I, I suppose I shouldn't have any rooted objection if both the defence and the prosecution were represented at your table. But it wouldn't be right for us to discuss the case. Oh, good heavens, no. No. For us to discuss the case would be quite improper, Chancellor. We could talk about anything else, though, can't we? Come on, shift around a bit. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that's my glass. Be careful. Uh, I'm really not sure there's room. I must admit my enthusiasm to share the Chancellor's table wasn't entirely due to the delights of Soapy Sam's company and conversation. The rain rattled against the windows, and the Saint Edith her sign creaked in the wind. Some rise by sin and some by virtue fall. Some run from breaks of ice and answer none. And some condemned for a fault alone. Is that, um... Measure for measure. As I thought. Act one. Act two. Scene two. Scene one. No. <clears throat> the point is, a night like this makes you think of injustice. Does it? Injustice. It's the same thing. Whether in a court of law or a cathedral. What are you talking about, Rumpel? Oh, what a strange sound the wind is making. Can you hear it? It's raining. More than that. Can't you hear the sound of a woman crying out? In pain at the wrong she's been forced to suffer? No, nor me. Oh. Clearly you chaps have no belief in miracles. 
Miracles are certainly an essential part of Christian dogma. I'm sure we all accept that. So we accept the story of the blessed Saint Edithna? A Christian woman in Roman times who was falsely accused of adultery because her beliefs irritated the establishment. They stoned her to death on this very spot. And where she fell dead, a small stream of cold water came trickling from the ground. Yeah, it must have been the one that came out of my bathtub this evening. <laughs> uh, just a moment, Claude. Hmm? I'm not sure we should take these mysteries so lightly. Oh, I, I'm frankly sorry, Chancellor. An old inn was built on St. Edithna's well in the Middle Ages, but it's said she keeps walking. Walking? Whenever some great injustice is done. For instance, 400 years ago, almost to the day, when a previous Chancellor had a couple of extremely decent cannons burnt to a cinder on the cathedral green, St. Edithna appeared on the staircase of the old inn, wringing her hands and crying out at the top of her voice. Yes, she was probably wondering what happened to her breakfast. Oh, ye, Erskine Brown of little faith. There is nothing in the teaching of our church to suggest that miracles are no longer possible. How true, Chancellor. And injustice continues to this very day. We can only hope that the poor lady will soon rest in peace. Indeed, indeed. But listen to the wind. There seems what? a definite hint of sobbing. Don't you think? But there again, who can say? Whether Bollard agreed with me or not, I took the opportunity later that night to point out the exact staircase where St. Edithna had walked, right next to the Chancellor's bedroom. And just before I finally turned in, I have to confess, I moaned very quietly just outside his door. When Soapy Sam opened it a fraction and peered through the gap into the shadowy corridor... Hello? Who's there? Hello? I saw the look of terror on his face and knew that the tale of the walking, wailing Saint Edithna would haunt him all night long. Oh, good Lord! Sure enough, the Chancellor of the Diocese looked like death warmed up as he sat in the chapter house of the cathedral next morning, ready to hear the trial of Canon Timothy Donkin. Robed and wigged, Bollard occupied a throne carved for a medieval bishop. Ranged around him was the jury of four assessors, with a clerk of the court in front, and an ecclesiastical usher lurking by his side. My learned friend, Claude Erskine Brown, was there with his cohort of official complainers, and I sat on an unyielding chair as the sole protector of Canon Timmy. The stage was set for a trial of heresy. Canon Donkin has attempted as best he can to convince his flock and this court that he used the bedroom in the St. Edithna Hotel to write his sermons. Now, this improbable excuse becomes incredible. Then one learns that he frequently worked in the Cathedral Library, allegedly researching the history of Launchester, which begs the question, why did he not also write his sermons in the library? 
I'll tell you why, Horace. Because the librarian never shuts up, and I couldn't concentrate. Yes, yes, I'll make that point in due course. Mr. Erskine Brown, is there any dispute as to whether the accused actually booked himself into a room at the St. Edithna Hotel? Uh, we have uh, written proof. A registration slip that shows the canon occupied room 39 on the 17th of March last year. Uh. A double room with twin beds and a bathroom. The twin beds can be pulled together if... If the occasion demands. Oh, really? Uh, Chancellor, with great respect, may I interrupt to point out that the hotel has no single rooms? Every bedroom has either twin beds or a double bed. Oh, I'd hate the jury to jump to the conclusion that the accused requested a couple of beds for the purpose of hanky-panky. Mr. Rumpel, we are within church precincts. I was forgetting. Forgive me. No more hanky-panky in here. I prefer conduct unbecoming. I'm sure we all do, Chancellor. <sighs> After some more tedious evidence about how much and how often Canon Timmy paid for his hotel rooms, a woman with untidy hair and overbitten fingernails found herself in the witness box. This was Miss Rita O'Keefe, a chambermaid at the St. Edithna, who'd worked there for three years and was not only present on the 17th of March, but actually standing at the end of a convenient corridor. The third floor corridor... With a view of room 39? That's right, sir, ah. yes. And I could see the fire door from the emergency staircase, and when it opened, I saw this woman. Now, can you describe her? Not really, sir, no, no. The light was behind her, and all I saw was she looked very thin, very slender. And what kind of age would you say she was? Um, elderly, perhaps? No, sir, no, 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 she was my sort of age. Then certainly not elderly, my dear. Oh, thank you, sir. God. <coughs> oh. um, uh, uh, what happened next? Uh, she walked very quickly, sir, uh, to the door of number 39. Canon Dunkin's room? Yes, sir, yes, and she knocked on the door and he opened it. Now, when you say he, you mean Canon Dunkin? Yes, sir. Father Duncan, he let her into the room and he shut the door. <clears throat> I kept watching for a bit longer, but they never came out again. Not while I was there. And how long did you stand in the corridor? About half an hour before the woman arrived, another half hour after she went in the room. I was in reception by six o'clock and I saw Father Duncan go out the front door and walk away from the hotel. Then I went up to his room and I saw the beds were made up, but there were cigarettes in the ashtray and they all had lipstick on them. So, well now, I cleaned up the room and I was done for the night. Uh, thank you, Mr O'Keefe. Uh, will you stay there in case my learned friend... What did you do with those cigarette butts, Miss O'Keefe? Did you keep them? Of course not, sir. No, uh... I put them in the bin. And you say the beds had not been slept in? No, Mr. Rumpel. The witness said the beds were made up. But they could have been made up after usage. If they were singularly domesticated lovers, I suppose you're right, Chancellor. Miss O'Keefe, you told us you stood watching in the corridor for half an hour before and half an hour after you saw a woman admitted to that room. Yes, sir. Yes. You just stood there, neglecting your duties? I had no duties at all, sir. It was my afternoon off. Your afternoon off? And you chose to spend it spying on Canon Duncan? That gentleman asked me to keep an eye on the Reverend. What gentleman? Him, over there. You're pointing at Mr Peter Lambert, estate agent and accuser of the accused? Mr Lambert, sir, yes. And how much did Mr Lambert pay you? 
30 pieces of silver? Oh, I really must object, Chancellor. Yes, Mr. Rumpole, I think we should try and keep the Bible out of this. Am I to understand that the Gospels do not apply in the ecclesiastical court? No, no, of course not. I mean, they do. Uh, I mean... Uh, I think it might be a good time to take another adjournment. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Miss oh, You're You're very welcome, sir. God bless. The evidence of this chambermaid had thrown the prosecution into some confusion as well as the Chancellor. As Erskine Brown conferred with his six accusers, I took a stroll around the cathedral with the accused. You say you're researching the history of this place. You do that in the library? When the librarian allows me a little peace and quiet, all the relevant paperwork is there. Ancient documents, contracts, agreements, uh, diaries. Found anything of interest? Orgies in the organ loft? Uh, uh, no. But there was a gift of land to the cathedral from the Crown in 1672. <laughs> Not quite as exciting. Well, it seems likely that King Charles II favoured the diocese with the field next door. The field that backs onto my garden. And wished to have it protected in perpetuum. The field with the Lambert and Porphyry sign stuck in the hedge. Hmm. They say they bought it. I say they can't. And I'm going to fight them in every court in the land. Timmy, you don't think, perhaps, that that's why Lambert wants you defrocked? What? Uh, gosh. You mean he's worried that I'll stop him from making some money? Well, if you have proof... I don't have definitive proof. Uh, not yet. I've seen a couple of draft contracts, and I think I'll find some more... But I'm not ready to prove anything just yet. Which is why he wants you out of the way. It's clear to me these trumped-up charges are a smokescreen. But the jury and the Chancellor will have heard Miss O'Keefe and may possibly believe she saw what she said she saw. Oh, I am not an adulterer, Horace. No one in their right mind would believe that I am. <laughs> And no one in their right mind would believe that I was having a torrid affair with my pupil, Liz Probert, apart from she who must be obeyed, who arrived, unannounced, in the St. Edithna Hotel that very night. Rumpel! Hilda, what the hell are you doing? I mean, um, how lovely to see you. Bit of a shock, is it? Ruining your plans for the night, am I? Well, where is she? Where's who? You know perfectly well who. Upstairs, I suppose, helping you with your briefs. You men are all the same. Cousin Tim is no better. What are you talking about, Hilda? I'm talking about your so-called pupil, Elizabeth Probert, of course. <sighs> You're going out for dinner with the girl? No. Better make it a table for three. Two. You and Probert? You and I. We shall be dining à deux. Liz Probert is enjoying a formal dinner in the inner temple, so I'm told. <clears throat> she, she, she's not here. <laughs> oh, are you very disappointed? No, no, no. Uh, uh, I wanted to look around Launchester anyway, mm. and, uh, oh, now it's too late to return to London. Well, <laughs> we'd best find a restaurant. Food here is rather like my jokes. Stale, nauseating, or merely tasteless. Oh, Hilda, that's rather unkind. <laughs> The small Italian trattoria around the corner was disappointing, but in its favour did not contain Bollard or Erskine Brown, who were unaware that she who must was paying me a visit. 
As we tucked into our lasagna and linguine, I felt a little dishonest with my repeated pleas of innocence concerning the alleged adultery with Liz Probert. I couldn't help thinking about my other pupil in chambers, Miss Phyllida Trant, the imminent arrival of the baby that everyone assumed had been fathered by Erskine Brown. Putting those thoughts to one side, I accompanied Hilda back to the hotel, where she found fault with every aspect of her temporary accommodation. What do you mean it's broken? It refuses to flush, Hilda. What if I give it a proper pull? No! I tried that before and it flooded the room. Just pop along the landing. There's a loo at the top of the stairs. A plan was forming in my mind. Divine inspiration or not, our broken system changed the course of history. Or at least the history of Canon Timothy Donkin. Oh, I'm really not happy, Rumpel. Not happy at all. She who must set off along the corridor wearing her faded white nightdress, with her hair now flopping over her face, which was covered in some kind of cream. I didn't like to ask its purpose. Suffice to say she looked a picture... A picture I wanted to share with Chancellor Bollard. And so, when Hilda was safely installed in the communal loo, I turned off a couple of lights and waited by the staircase. Oh, where's the switch? Aha! That's better. Not too dark. When, moments later, I heard the sound of rushing water, I rattled the handle on Soapy Sam's door, then quickly disappeared into a shadowy alcove. Sam, in pyjamas opened the door and peered out into the gloomy corridor. Hello? What he saw must have filled him with terror and foreboding. A tallish woman, clothed in white, oh. lank hair half-hiding her pale, gleaming face, oh. was passing by, her hands clasped together, until she could find a nice, clean towel. Oh. Soapy Sam uttered a strangled cry and fell back inside his bedroom. Oh, woman. There to contemplate the dreadful results of injustice. Thank God. My father put out in heaven, hell be thy name. I come and fly with a damn moment as it is now. You should have prunes every morning, not fried bread. Don't like prunes. They keep you regular. So does Chateau Thames Embankment. You're quite sure you won't stay another night. Oh, in a hotel with such primitive sanitary arrangements? I think not. Oh, shame. Oh, by the way, I asked members of the Donkin family about Wendy. Who? Wendy Donkin, Timmy's sister. The girl no one talks about. It seems everyone's got something to say. Oh. She went to prison, theft and fraud. She came out, did some more stealing or fraud or something. Anyway, she'll go back to prison if the police ever catch her. But... No one knows where she is. No one? Do you know where she is, Rumpole? You have that look on your face. I have no idea where she might be now. I suspect I know where she was on the 17th of March, there. Hmm. The next morning, in order to confirm my suspicions, I met Canon Timmy in the crypt. All I needed was a confession, but it seemed I didn't have a prayer. Ah, oh, poor, poor Wendy. Never mind your sympathy. Think of your reputation, of your career. It was Wendy you met in that hotel room, wasn't it? Perhaps you were writing a sermon, but you also made time to see your sister, yes? I can't say. You had no idea you were being watched by Lambert's spy, but you were. 
So now you have to tell the truth. No. Did you give your sister some money? I gave her... I gave her a promise. What? Not to tell anyone I've seen her. Well, it's a promise you'll have to break. I'm going to put you in the witness box and you'll tell Soapy Sam all about it. No! I gave my word. I'm not bringing Wendy into this. Are you insane? I don't think so. But I am quite determined. For God's sake, I can't represent a saint. I'm not trying to be a saint. Yeah, there I... you are, Rumpel. The Chancellor wants to see us now. Soapy Sam looked pale and weary when Erskine Brown dragged me into his sanctum behind the chapter house. Had he spent a rough night on the road to Damascus? Hmm. I must tell you both, I have given this case the most anxious consideration. Well, I shouldn't have thought there was much doubt about the facts. Facts? Facts are not everything. This isn't an ordinary court, and we are here to exercise a very special jurisdiction. We must be careful not to commit an injustice against an innocent person. We have, of course, the memory of a certain martyr in our minds. Oh, very much so, Chancellor. Saint Edithna is always in my mind. We must be grateful for any sort of guidance this holy city of Launchester can give us. Guidance? Guidance comes to us from many unexpected sources. A woman in white... On the landing. What on earth are you talking about, uh, uh, Chancellor? I think what his worship means, Erskine Brown, is that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Exactly, Rumpel. Very well put, if I may say so. I have thought anxiously about this case, and I'm not ashamed to say that I have prayed. Haven't we all? You've prayed too, I hope, Erskine Brown. Well, then... <laughs> Yes, but... Uh, I have come to a clear decision. Having regard to the evidence about the financial interests involved and the possibility that Miss O'Keefe might have been tempted to, shall we say, invent her statement in return for money... There's a lot of original sin about nowadays. I have come to the conclusion that it would not be safe to proceed any further against Canon Donkin. I will direct the assessors to acquit. Oh, no! Are you willing to hear arguments, Chancellor? Give up, Erskine Brown. God's again you. <sighs> the vision of She Who Must had clearly worked miracles with Bollard. I was counting my blessings on the platform of Launchester Station when my ex-client, Canon Timmy, came running towards me. Horace! Horace! Oh, I thought I'd missed you. I looked for you in the cathedral. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't face another inquisition, so I hid in the organ loft. But you've heard the good news. I retain my frock. Huh. I live on to fight Lambert and Palfrey. Well, with God on your side, how can you lose? Ah, Rumpel, you're still here. So I'm not too late. For what, Erskine Brown? The 225. The next one's a stopping train, and I have to get home as quickly as possible. Is something wrong? It's Philida. What? What's happened? She's had the baby. Oh, congratulations. Well, not just one baby, two babies, twins. And we had absolutely no idea. Twins? Oh, a double blessing. A veritable quiverful. <laughs> yes, it's fantastic news. If it was a boy, we were going to call him Siegfried. If it was a girl, I rather fancied Brunhilde. But now, 
We've got one of each. We can name them Tristan and Isolde. Charming. When we arrived at Paddington Station, I managed to persuade Erskine Brown that a traditional wetting of the baby's heads was required before he hurried home to Islington. In truth, I felt it was my duty to try and persuade him that names from a Wagnerian opera would not make his children the most popular members of the playground. But my pearls of wisdom fell on stony ground. Why was I feeling so protective of his children? Was I still in any doubt that Erskine Brown was the father? And so, after a bottle or two of Chateau Fleet Street, and a final toast to Tristan, Isolde, and Wagnerian heroes everywhere, I made my way home to receive my usual benediction. Is that you, Rumpel? No, it's Votan, the god of light, air, and uh, wind. Oh, for goodness sake, Rumpel, do you have to? Oh, good evening, Hilda. Uh, may I pour you a gin and tonic? Perhaps a glass of Pomeroy is very ordinary for myself. You're quite sure you haven't had enough? Quite sure, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm sorry your little holiday in the West Country was so short. I don't know why I came down in the first place. Oh, it was enormously kind of you. And you did more good than you realise. By finding out about Cousin Wendy? That information was valuable, but your presence, your very presence, was miraculous. They say miracles are past and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. You're very drunk, aren't you, Rumpel? Yes. Do try and catch up. Cheers. Oh. <sighs> Cheers. Thank you. The, uh, the reason I came to see you, I don't want you to think. It was not because I was jealous. Of course not. Even so, there's no reason for me to worry about Elizabeth Probert. Is there? No reason at all to worry about Liz. Good. I should have had more faith in you, Rumpel. Faith? Mm. There's no trust, no faith, no honesty in men. All perjured, all forsworn, all naught, all dissemblers. Shakespeare? Romeo and Juliet. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Now, who said that? Was it... Hmm, St. Augustine? Do you know, I think I've had enough of all these saints. I admit, I owe the blessed Saint Edithna a huge thank you. As for the rest, they can all go to... Grumpel, don't you dare. Ooh, sorry, Hilda, going too far. Well, let's raise our glasses and uh, drink to... The Age of Miracles. The Age of Miracles. Bottoms up. <laughs> In Rumpole and the Age of Miracles by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was Benedict Cumberbatch, Hilda Rumpole, Jasmine Hyde, 
Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Anthony, Sam Ballard, Michael Cochran, and Tim Donkin was Roger May. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpold and the Age of Miracles was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs>